Welcome to the Cosmic Chronicles podcast, where imagination meets reality and science fiction comes to life. This is our very first bonus episode. It's just me today, guys. James is on vacation. So I thought for today's episode, I would answer some of the audience's questions that we've gotten over the last several weeks of doing the podcast. These are questions about my thoughts on various books, movies, and TV shows, and various questions relating to different science fiction media and other kinds of media. So without further ado, let's get into our first question. In this modern world, where remakes and reboots are the norm, instead of new and interesting content, if you have enough money to fund a reboot slash remake of your choice, what would it be? Now, being the fanatic I am, I'm tempted to say Star Trek The Next Generation because you didn't specify movie or TV show. But when I think and I ponder a little bit more, I come to the more sensible conclusion that TNG actually ended perfectly and TNG does not really need a reboot of any kind. Now, as I've said in like previous episodes, I have not seen all of Star Trek Picard so I'll eventually watch that, but I think that TNG had a great ending, and I think that all of the characters came to an awesome conclusion, and I feel like it's best left where it is. And because I think TNG should stay where it is, then I have to say, probably 1997's Dark City. Now, I think this is a really great and interesting film, and I really love it, but I think it is a movie that could be updated for a modern audience with modern visuals. And I think it has a lot of ideas and themes that I think would resonate with a modern audience. I think this is a movie that probably inspired even The Matrix a lot. You know, it really plays with that idea of like, what is reality? What is real? So if you don't know about Dark City, Dark City takes place in this place. It's a dark city where no one really notices that it's night all the time. And at night, at midnight, these guys in these trench coats with these these white with this white skin, they come every night and they make everyone go to sleep and they reset everything. They rearrange everyone. They change everybody's memories. And people wake up in a new life with maybe a new spouse or, or new kids and all of these false memories. And it resets every midnight. And it's a really interesting movie that really explores the concept of, you know, identity and what is real and how can we tell what is real. And I think it's just a fantastic movie. And like I said, definitely a big influence on The Matrix. But this movie itself, of course, is, you know, is taking inspiration from things like William Gibson's Neuromancer, obviously. So it, it the train of influence always goes back and back and back and back and back. But yeah, I think my answer is Dark City. I think it is a um, excellent candidate for a science fiction movie that could be remade. And if the right director got a hold of it, I think we could end up with something that is distinct from the original um, and says new things that incorporates things from, you know, that have ideas that have developed in the time since that original came out. Because, you know, 1997, you know, it's going on 30 years at this point. And a lot has happened in the last three decades. Other than Dark City, if I had to pick another, I'd probably do 
Logan's Run. I think that Logan's Run is a pretty cool book, and I think that the movie is interesting in its own way, and it has a lot of ver- it has a lot of differences from the book, and it's interesting in its own way. But I do think that the movie has some problems, and I think that a nice modern update of that movie would work really, really well with some modern visuals to really like bring it all together. Um, not to hate on the old movie because it is a classic and it does have like unique visuals and interesting things about it. But I would love to see specifically a visual update on that movie today. I think that science fiction as a genre, you know, in the realm of books and and the cinematic realm continues to evolve and continues to build upon, upon itself and continues to take inspirations from old things and rethink those ideas and I don't think remakes are entirely bad. There are definitely some things that, you know, don't need to be remade. You know, we probably shouldn't ever make 2001 A Space Odyssey again, right? We probably shouldn't really touch anything like The Thing again. You know, there are some some things that are classics, but I think there are some things that, you know, can be updated re- with remakes. And I think there have been some remakes that have come out and have done interesting things uh, you know, with the original. And, you know, definitely I think there are some sequels that have come out and done interesting things with the original. I know, like, we just talked about Blade Runner 2049. And then there are those sequels that don't do anything interesting with the material, you know, like the Thing uh, prequel that came out in 2011 or something like that. I think that sometimes maybe, like, a few decades will pass and something will have occurred in society that makes the ideas that have been presented in previous movies or whatever become more relevant or or that maybe add something to those ideas, something that needs to be expressed and maybe a remake or a reboot or something like that. And I also think there are those times when reboots and remakes get made just because the studio wants money, you know, like we're on like, we're going to have 15 Jurassic World movies that, you know, basically say nothing. (laughs) You know, they're fun to watch the dinosaurs fight, I guess, but, you know, it's not really adding anything to the franchise. Let's move on to our next question. What's your top three underrated works? I'm going to go ahead and say Hyperion, Dan Simmons, Xenogenesis, Octavia Butler, so good, and Revelation Space, Alistair Reynolds. Now, Hyperion is one of those that I I tell people about all the time. Hyperion is one of the best sets of science fiction books that I've ever read. So you got to read Hyperion and you've also got to read Fall of Hyperion. And then you've got to decide whether or not you want to go into Endymion and Rise of Endymion because it's it kind of does a dune thing you know kind of like a god emperor thing where we're jumping hundreds of years in the future and we're getting a whole new set of characters and there's not much connective tissue in the way of you know like characters you know like the strike is in all of them and you know we were still dealing with the world of hyperion but it's very very um you know it's it's a huge jump but that first set of books especially hyperion and the fall of hyperion is absolutely a must-read set of books. It is thrilling. The world-building is excellent. The characters are awesome. All of their backstories are super awesome. The first book mirrors the Canterbury Tales, where you've got, you know, seven people recanting their tales as they go on this pilgrimage. Um, There's just some great mystery to the whole thing. 
And I really do think the first book is probably the best book out of out of the four. Not saying that the other three are bad. Like the first book is just it's just so so good. It hooks you immediately. Um, and I just think it's a wonderful series. I had heard some buzz a few years ago about it being potentially adapted into something, but I haven't really heard that much about it. And people, this is one that people don't seem to talk about that much or don't seem to know that much, you know, outside of really my fandom and my community. I know my community, we know about it because I've, I've talked about it on videos. And of course, I think that just because of the content that I cover on my channel in general, you know, it draws in the type of people that are more likely to be more familiar with it. But in general, outside of, you know, these spaces, it is less known. And I think it deserves so much more credit for how freaking good it is and how thrilling it is and how really thoughtful it is as a series and how strong it is thematically. It's just really, really, really powerful and moving at times um, and very poetic at times, like just great po prose just just really good really good and i also mentioned xenogenesis octavia butler octavia butler is incredible but Z xenogenesis i feel like to me just like really really stands out as just a series that deserves so much more attention than it really gets people are always talking about parable of the sower um people talk about kindred a lot and i totally get why people talk about those books but Xenogenesis, that this as a sci-fi trilogy is so good. Um, and I have done a couple videos on it on my YouTube channel. And I just think it's, it's, it's really good. So it's basically, if you don't know what it's about, essentially you have Earth being damaged and humans have fought wars and we've basically destroyed the Earth. So aliens save some humans and um, they rebuild the Earth. And they're gonna they're gonna save the human race, but at a cost. And that cost is they want to genetically merge with humans and create hybrids. And it's 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 an interesting, weird, and a little bit uncomfortable series because it's asking the question, you know, how much would be, we be willing to pay for our survival as a species? Would we be willing to face um, essentially? extinction you know extinction through you know evolution forced evolution um in order to carry forward and to continue like passing on and and creating more generations are we willing to be changed to the point where we're no longer even human um and also octavia does octavia butler does something really awesome with this um and that is that she makes the alien the form of these alien beings really not human and just really kind of, you know, like gross and something that, you know, they're, they're tentacly and they're just really kind of like creepy. Um, so it just creates this very, very weird tension throughout the series. And I just think it's it deserves so much more attention. And this is something that I think should be adapted. This would make a really interesting HBO show, I think. And last on my list was Revelation Space, Alistair Reynolds. Really good series for people that like space operas, people that like really 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 big expansive worlds uh the world building is just like through the roof alistair reynolds is a master at world building uh lots of different characters interconnecting plots like deep deep history to everything um alistair reynolds work in general i feel like if you love you know science fiction space operas 
um, and you know, like having a bunch of lore um, and, and a bunch of history to explore. Um, it's perfect for that type of thing. So those three, I think, are my three underrated uh, uh, book series. <laughs> so there you go. All right, so moving on to the next question. Do you have any unique tips for aspiring writers out there? Well, thank you for asking me. Uh, so as some of you might know, I released my book, Tadia, a couple years ago now, my first ever graphic novel. And in just a few weeks, we're going to be launching the campaign for my latest graphic novel, my first science fiction graphic novel, The Lie Behind the Star. And that's been a huge, huge, you know, work in progress. And we're finally getting ready to launch the campaign, finally getting ready to reveal a lot of the art that went into the book and reveal the story and all of that stuff. So do I have any tips for aspiring writers out there? Um, well, unique tips, not really. I, I guess I'm, I'm probably going to say what most people say, which is I just I practice a lot, rewrite a lot. Don't be afraid to, you know, go back and rewrite things that you've already written. You have to be willing to, like, take something that's not working and totally, like, throw it away and try and find something that is working. And it's a lot of work. It's not something that's easy. I know, like, I, I, I think a lot of people, myself included, I, when you first start, you have this idea that, like, oh, this, this is just going to flow out of me, like, perfectly, and I'm not going to, like, it's just going to flow out of me in just, like, a night or something. I'm going to write, have the whole thing written. And it doesn't work like that. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of thinking. And it's a lot of, like, you know, deleting things and rewriting things. Um, and also, another tip that I have is find someone that you trust to proofread for you and to give you feedback and someone that's that's actually going to read it first of all because that's another hurdle that you have to get up get over it's really hard to find people that are actually going to read the work um, and it's really hard to find people that are going to read the work and give honest um, constructive feedback on the work so I feel like that's really important as well and um, also just being honest in what you're writing you know what I mean? Being honest in, you know, what you're trying to say with the work, um, because I feel like that's really that's something that's detectable when you're reading a story is how is is, is the authenticity. I feel like that's really, really important in writing um, is, is being honest and not uh, being afraid of being, you know, seen in the work that you're producing. Because if you're afraid of being seen in the work that you're producing, then you're always going to write something that's not true. So I hope that's that's just, I guess, my advice. I hope that is is good enough advice. And thanks for asking me. It shows that, you know, I'm kind of making it if people are asking me for writing advice. Uh, so thank you. All right. So moving on to the next question. In the spirit of spooky season, what science fiction novel scares you the most hmm let me think well of course blind sight by peter watts is a really really scary sci-fi book um it's got the vampires it's got that sense of isolation it's yeah that's a really really creepy one but i'm not going to say that one i'm actually going to say frankenstein mary shelley's frankenstein and it, it, Frankenstein is, is definitely associated with Halloween and spooky stuff. 
but it's not really scary for the people for the reason that people tend to think it's scary people tend to think it's scary because oh the big scary monster being brought back from the dead for me that's not the scary part of frankenstein the scary part of frankenstein is the fact that you can look your creator in the eye and then see something that's totally weak and miserable and pathetic and less than you the fact that that's even possible and then also the fact that we live in a world that's so cruel that you people are rejected by their creators all the time people are rejected by their parents all the time and forced to go out and live this horrible life while, where they then go on to be rejected by the world um and it's just i guess it's more sad than scary but i feel like um sadness and horror two sides of the same coin um so i i think frankenstein is is definitely one of those that's scary to me the idea that like i because you know mankind has wondered about our creator as an a god for for I don't, I don't know since since mankind existed we've wondered like where did all this come from is there a god um the possibility exists <laughs> that we could one day find something that would fit the definition of God and, and the possibility exists that this thing that we would expect to be divine, you know, potentially all knowing and all powerful, all of these, you know, attributes that we've assigned to a supposed God throughout our history, we would expect all of these things, but perhaps it was just no better than us, a physical being that somehow is outside our physical bubble but a physical being no less so and i think that idea is is scary and that's some of what's brought up in frankenstein a little bit maybe i'm rambling a little bit but <laughs> yeah I, I i i'm gonna say frankenstein all right let's go to the next question are there more series or books you would recommend involving planning over time or civilizations over time Seeing it with the foundation in the show, Dune, and the Wallfacer project obviously goes to the extreme. The absolute gamble on humanity's future is always captivating to read or watch. Alright, so I just mentioned Revelation Space, Alistair Reynolds. That's a pretty good one that has some of those ideas, some of those same ideas. Another, I'm going to actually recommend a graphic novel. I'm going to recommend Jodorowsky's the Meta Baron. And the Meta Baron is... People talk about Jodorowsky's Dune and how it never got made. Jodorowsky, after Dune never got made, he took all of his ideas and he basically put them into the Meta Baron. When you read this graphic novel, and the art is absolutely beautiful, um, you can definitely see the influence that Dune had on it. Except it's Jodorowsky and he takes it to his totally outside weird Jodorowsky territory, but it is an absolutely fantastic graphic novel, an excellent read. You can get it on Amazon, the big book, um, I think, at a pretty pretty reasonable price, I think. Um, I'm sure you can probably get it digitally as well. Um, just great, great, great sci-fi graphic novel, and it definitely goes on and on and on and on and on, and you see the passing of many generations of Meta Barons. Moving on to the next question. What do you think about Hunters of Dune and Sandworms of Dune? Sorry if you've answered this before. Well, I did do a video. I've done a couple videos on, on Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson's Dune books. 
I think that Hunters of Dune and Sandworms of Dune are books that give an ending to the Dune series, even if it's not the ending that I think Frank Herbert would have done. And I, I do think that, you know, it, they can be fun to read if you're just accepting that this is maybe like an alternate universe and this is not necessarily where Frank Herbert's universe was leading. Um, definitely, you, there's a definite writing style change as to be expected, but it is a little, it can be jarring because Frank Herbert just had this style of writing that I think was was kind of unique. And he, he just had a way of saying things and a way of expressing things that are pretty, it was just pretty unique. And there are certain points in these books where they try to ape his style. You know, they have like the quotes in the beginning of the chapters and they're trying to ape his style, but there's something about it just kind of feels not quite right. Um, and then also it, they do things with characters and with themes in these two that I don't agree with. I don't agree with, for one, making a Gola out of Leto the second. Um, spoiler alert. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Um, I don't agree with things like um, what they do with um, Erasmus and Omnius and making them Daniel and Marty. Um, so in, 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 in Hunters and Sandworms of Doom, they do this thing where the honored Matres actually had encountered the remnants of the machine empire, this in, this empire of sentient machines that developed from um, leftover machines from the Butlerian Jihad. So you had Erasmus and Omnius, who these uber-powerful machine intelligence leftover from the Butlerian Jihad. Um, and because the Honored Matres disturbed them, they became alerted to the presence of humanity, and they come back and they're like, we're just going to destroy all of humanity, um, something like that. So it really, um, so it really kind of just turns its back on what is established in Chapter House Dune and in Heretics of Dune that these are face dancers that were liberated and became very, very advanced. Um, it kind of goes back on all of that, and it and it creates kind of like this more Terminator esque plot line. And they do something similar with the Machine Crusade books, even though the Machine Crusade books are a little bit more tolerable with the way they go about things. Um, Hunters of Dune and Sandworms of Dune definitely have things about them that really stand out to me. It's just like it, it just doesn't feel quite right. And that's just my opinion. I know some people really like Hunters of Dune and Sandworms of Dune. And that is great, and I'm glad people like those books. But I, 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 what I don't think is, I, I, I definitely don't agree with the fact that there are, I will say this, I don't agree with the fact that there are so many non-Frank Herbert Dune books. There's like six Frank Herbert Dune books, and then there's something like, I don't know, like 15 Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson books, and they just keep going and going and going, just filling in more and more gaps. I think the most recent one was like some book called Princess of Dune that's like in between Dune and Dune Messiah. And it's just like, why do we even need this? I, I don't, I just don't even know. But yeah, so that's the deal with that. Those are my thoughts on the Brian Herbert stuff and Hunters and Sandworms of Dune. Read them if you're a completionist. But I think that just speculating 
on what would have happened based on the six original books is honestly a better experience than reading them in my personal opinion. All right, moving on to the next question. Is Peter F. Hamilton on your radar at all? I can't seem to find any references to him in your playlist. Actually, you are in luck. I think I've either done one or two videos on the Void trilogy by Peter F. Hamilton. And you can find that on my channel if you just type in Void trilogy, Quinn's ideas, and you can locate that. Peter F. Hamilton is another writer of space operas, um, the Void trilogy specifically has a mystery surrounding a black hole at the center of the galaxy that is emitting some kind of signal. It's emitting something that we can detect. So you can totally check out that video and check out the Void trilogy if you so like. Moving on to the next question. One of the sci-fi novels that brought me into the world of science fiction was C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. What science fiction novel brought you into the world of science fiction? This is definitely kind of a hard question because I think when I was younger, when I was a kid, I really didn't think about genres when I was reading stuff. I kind of just read whatever. I definitely read Ender's Game at a pretty young age, and I liked it a lot. Um, another one that I read that I always think of as science fiction, but I haven't read it since, so I don't really know if it classifies as science fiction, and that was a book called City of Ember, and it's one that has always stuck with me over the years. You have these people that live underground, and they've been down there too long because they were supposed to have some way to get out. I don't remember exactly what the deal was, but they were supposed to have some way to get out. There was something that was supposed to happen after 200 years that was supposed to guide them out, but it never happened. And they've been down there for way longer than, than they're supposed to. And everything is failing. All of their systems are failing. They've, they're running out of food. Uh, the generator that gives them, gives them power is breaking down. And they've been, their entire history is fake. They've been taught that there's nothing outside of Ember. Um, they, there's this creepy religion that's a part of it, if I remember correctly. Um, and if I remember correctly, when they first went down to Ember, they actually sent all of these really old people with a bunch of babies because they wanted the older generation to die off rather quickly and the younger generation to have no memory of the world that they had left behind. And I remember this book as a kid, it, it really, really stuck in my mind. And I've always thought about it from time to time. And I should definitely go back and read it again. Um, I don't remember exactly who wrote it, but it was called City of Ember. And there may have been a movie that came out at some point in time that was a little different. But I don't know as much about the movie, so <laughs> there you have it. City of Ember, the book, though, that I think that if I have to be like, what was my first book that got me into sci-fi, that type of thing, probably that book. Let's move on to the next question. Why do so many of the great sci-fi authors, especially more contemporary ones such as Ian Banks, Neil Stevenson's Greg Bear, Larry Neven, J.J. Ballard, Bruce Sterling, etc., remain unadapted and with no film or television or even video game production? What is your favorite obscure author who you think deserves a big screen adaptation the most? 
Well, when it comes to Ian Banks, I'm pretty sure Ian Banks's estate is pretty against adaptation. And J.G. Ballard has been adapted a little bit. I'm pretty sure High Rise, I talked about that a little bit in my ner my Neuromancer video that his uh, story High Rise got adapted. So he's got a little bit of the adaptations happening. But what I really think it comes down to is, you know, money. You know, some, something like Neil Stevens and Snow Crash, that's, that's going to be a lot of money. You know, Larry Neven, Ring World, that's going to be a lot of money. Um, and I think when it comes to these big entities that are willing to spend the money that's required for these types of big productions, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, they they don't want to lose that money. So they're more comfortable going with things that are more familiar. They're more comfortable making Fast and the Furious 11. They're more comfortable making Star Wars 9. They're more comfortable making whatever is going to guarantee them the most money. And then every once in a blue moon, you'll get someone taking a chance on something. Every once in a blue moon, you might get a big director that has some clout like Villeneuve or Christopher Nolan that really, really wants to make something. And then you can get something like this made. But most of the time, they're not going to take the risk on something that they're not guaranteed is going to be a huge hit especially if it's going to be one of these big epic sci-fi things you know like the culture series that is huge there it's a huge series which with the that would you'd need a bunch of cgi you'd need a bunch of actors and a bunch of different characters it would be a huge undertaking the same same with something like ring world it'd be a huge huge production so so really the answer is it's just a money thing and finally, we're moving to the last question for our bonus episode. Do you see a larger growing trend in sci-fi towards dystopian futures or more utopian ones? And what do you think that says about society at large? Well, I think in science fiction, honestly, there's been a trend over the last like 30 years or more in science fiction towards the more dystopian futures. And I personally think the reason that is is because as information has become more and more available people really are starting to see like the bigger picture and people are really starting to see you know the negative side of humanity at large and the negative impact that we have on the planet at large and we also are existing right now this is the first time in human history you know like within the last like 50 60 years that we have had the power to actually destroy the entire planet with nuclear weapons. This is something that's never existed throughout most of human history. Like a few people in a few places on the planet pressing a few buttons could destroy everything, you know, and turn turn the world into a radioactive hellscape. And that is very, very, very terrifying. And it's, it's really difficult sometimes to um, try and... It's it, how long can we me maintain the peace when everybody's finger is on the button? You know what I mean? How long before the button gets pressed? And then you you know you read things about you know like the times in which you know nuclear war has a almost accidentally been set off because of just like human error or like machine errors or something like that. And it's just it's just terrifying. There's so many ways that things could go horribly wrong. You know, from nuclear weapons to you know biological weapons is something that's very very scary like we have the power to manipulate 
viruses, and bacteria. And we have fanatics of all kinds on the planet. Um, fanatics with all sorts of beliefs about all sorts of different things that have access to a lot of the same technology that benevolent entities have access to. And, you know, there are things at the CDC in Atlanta that are, you know, some of the most infectious things on the face of the planet. It's biological horrors, literally. You know, if some of that stuff got out, you know, like, I mean, things could get really, really, really bad and really, really scary. So I think that because people are aware of all the ways in which things can go bad and we're more aware than ever there has been a trend towards more and more dystopian stories. I'm not saying that utopian stories are totally gone. I'm not saying that optimism is totally gone, but optimism has become less and less. I feel like we the optimistic age of science fiction definitely passed a long time ago when we've been on a dystopian we've been on this dystopian cake for a very long time now with a lot of reason. Now, I'm not saying that we can't turn things around as a species. and In fact, I kind of have to hope that we can. I kind of am betting on that. You know what I mean? I want humanity to move forward and to evolve in a positive way. And I don't want us all to be blown to smithereens. And I don't want us to turn the earth into a wasteland. And I hope that we can fix it. But I understand why things, why, why, why there is a trend towards dystopian futures in fiction. And... I think we're coming to a close on our very first bonus episode of the podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure you follow our YouTube channel and you can listen to the podcast on Spotify, Apple podcast, Google podcast, wherever you listen to podcast. We will be returning for our normally scheduled episodes starting next week. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.